What happened to Japan and Germany at the end of World War II? Ever wondered? Well, I have. One moment they were the bogeymen, and the next they were occupied. What about the Allied forces? Well, they were the occupiers, not just of Japan and Germany, but swathes of land across the world. Not only the old colonies such as India, but new ones such as Iran and Eastern Europe, that happened only after World War Two. There's something just odd about the winners and losers of the bloodiest wars in human history, starting in 1914 and ending in 1945. Thirty-one years of blood. Before looking at the defeated, let's. Examine the winners, the Allied powers. There were three large land and sea powers: the United Kingdom and its massive empire, the United States and its massive landmass, and you could argue an empire if you count the natives as having lived there before, etc., 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 and the Soviet Union and its huge land empire. Lumped into this was France, who, for a chunk of World War II at least, was occupied itself. The United Kingdom was an empire. Yes, the UK was an empire. It had been a huge empire for the best part of two hundred years, possibly, actually, the biggest land empire in history. When Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared war on Germany in nineteen thirty-nine, in my mind, it was for geostrategic reasons. Its own occupation of lands far and away had positive and negative consequences to the subjugated. To their credit, though, the empire had abolished slavery years ago, but that did not mean that all peoples were treated well. The empire supplied troops, including those from Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, who operated on a proactive policy of genocide and discrimination against the native populations in their own territories. The United States was in 1914 and in 1939 a post-slavery state. However, what Americans called the Jim Crow era was the normal course of political business at the start of World War II. This was the 100-year period between the end of the U.S. Civil War in 1865 to the 1965 Civil Rights and Immigration Acts. Until 1965, immigration to the U.S. was limited to certain European countries. And Jim Crow meant that blacks in the U.S., especially in the U.S. South, were denied access to votes, and though not slaves, remained in an apartheid system with little to no voting rights. All the while, the natives were moved into reservations or just, you know, just killed off. The USSR was in 1914 an imperial state, an autocratic Russia. Although the serfs had recently been freed, the system was still against the poorer segments of society. By 1939, however, you had Stalin's purges through the 1930s, causing many to be harshly imprisoned and worse killed. This was no small effort. It is estimated that up to one million people died in summary executions, massacres, mass murders, and ethnic cleansing. I'd like to do an honorary mention of France in 1939 and in 1914. It, like the United Kingdom, was an imperial power with all the upsides and downsides to note that the British encountered. Another mention is China, who, in 1914, 
was not a communist state, but a republic of sorts after the end of their imperial era. China was politically fragmented and was not a participant in World War I. In 1939, it was under occupation by Japan in much of its traditional lands. In addition, the European powers, notably the British, were also involved in China. China, at the time, was geopolitically weak, but like Korea, was against the Japanese occupations of their own lands. Even in 1939, the ongoing Sino-Japan conflicts had proved many Chinese casualties, even before the onset of the official declaration of war in 1939. Needless to say, all the European-focused allies, including the United States, were anti-Semitic and or had long-standing histories with anti-Semitism. In case you are not sure, anti-Semitism just means hating on Jews. So what about the defeated? Let's start with Japan. In 1914, Japan sided with the British, French, etc., while in 1939, it sided with Germany, Italy, etc. It was an imperial state. Losing in 1945, of course. Interestingly, Japan, between 1603 and 1868, a total of 165 years, Japan's foreign policy during this time was of no wars. It was strictly isolationist, meaning they cut themselves off from the rest of the planet, barring a few things to trade with. This era is known as Edo Japan, or the Edo Air Era. It is a fascinating experiment, if you can call it that, when they were just by themselves. It was only in 1854 when the Americans forced, and I mean forced, the Japanese to trade with them. Japan, having suddenly awoken from their slumber, looked around and they noted that others were advancing with amazing new technologies and political systems. Japan modelled its political system on the British. It had a diet as its parliament and a prime minister. They already had the monarch. What they needed to know, you know, catch up, and to be someone, was an empire. They had a tussle with Russia, defeating them in 1905, and then after World War I, went all in on Manchuria, China, and Korea. During World War II, Japan expanded into the European-run Southeast Asia. Germany. If we assume Japan became who they were after 1868, then Germany, like Japan, started out after the Franco-Prussian Wars of 1870-1871. It was only after 1871 that Germany came into being as a country. Prior to that, you had multiple principalities going back centuries, often hiding under the umbrella of the Holy Roman Empire, but there was no Germany, because Germany came into being in 1871. Right away, they became the most advanced country in Europe, giving France, Britain and Russia a run for their money. In 1918, Germany was on the losing side. In 1945, Germany was on the losing side. In both cases, they were blamed for the start of the war in the first place. Indeed, in the 1919 Peace of Versailles, explicitly, they blamed the Germans. The 1945 surrender was ultimately the final straw. Italy, who were also losers in 1945, were on the Allied side, interestingly, in 1914, 
or there were flip-floppers changing sides. In 1939, they were firmly in the German camp. Interestingly, Italy, like Germany, only really became a unified state between 1829 and 1871. And yes, these European countries were also very, very anti-Semitic. So I've kind of set the stage here. We have, in 1914, a bunch of countries at war. On analysis, all bad guys. In 1939, also a bunch of countries at war. All bad guys, again, but Japan and Germany, much worse bad guys than the others. Why did Neville Chamberlain delay war to 1939? Why? Because he had to appease Germany. Not because maybe he wanted to appease Germany, but he had to. The UK was not ready for war, in military terms, and mentally the country was barely two decades out of the First World War. Chamberlain let Germany take the Sudetenland via the Munich Agreement in 1938 because he had no choice. The UK only declared war in 1939 after Poland was invaded. A red line was crossed, not because the Jews, the Gypsies and the Slavs were being killed. The decision was geopolitical. The Americans were actually nowhere at the time. No one declared war in 1939 for humanitarian reasons but because the geopolitical situation in Europe demanded mobilisation. The British delay was to get ready for war because they weren't, and when they did declare war, it was for geopolitical reasons. Let's look at the two main defeated, the Germans and the Japanese, starting in Japan. The surrender of Imperial Japan was announced by the Japanese Emperor Hirohito on the 15th of August and formally signed on September the 2nd, 1945, bringing the hostilities of World War II to a close. By the end of July 1945, the Imperial Japanese Navy was incapable of conducting major operations anyway, and an Allied invasion of Japan was imminent. Together with the British Empire and China, the United States called for the unconditional surrender of the Japanese armed forces at the Potsdam Declaration on the 26th of July, 1945, the alternative being prompt and utter destruction. On the 6th of August, 1945, at 8.15am local time, the United States detonated an atomic bomb over the Japanese city of Hiroshima. 16 hours later, the American President Harry S. Truman called again for Japanese surrender warning them to expect a rain of ruin from the air like of which never has been seen before. Late in the evening of August 8, 1945, in accordance with the Yalta agreements, but in violation of the Soviet-Japanese neutrality, neutrality pact, the USSR declared war on Japan, and soon after midnight on the 9th of August 1945, the Soviet Union invaded the Imperial Japanese puppet state of Muchanko, Hours later, the US dropped a second atomic bomb, this time on the city of Nagasaki in Japan. Following these events, Emperor Hirohito intervened and ordered the Supreme Council for the direction of the war to accept the terms the Allies had laid down at the Potsdam Declaration. After several more days of behind-the-scenes negotiations and a failed coup d'etat, 
Emperor Hirohito gave a recorded radio address across the empire on August the 15th. In the radio address, called Dual Voice Broadcast, he announced the surrender of Japan to the Allies. On the 28th of August, the occupation of Japan led by the Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers began. The surrender ceremony was held on the 2nd of September aboard the United States Navy battleship, the USS Missouri, at which officials from the Japanese government signed the Japanese instrument of surrender, thereby ending the hostilities. The state of war was formally ended when the Treaty of San Francisco came into force on the 28th of April, 1952. Four more years passed before Japan and the USSR signed the Soviet-Japanese Joint Declaration of 1956, which formally brought an end to their state of war. Japanese officials left for Manila on the 19th of August to meet Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers, Douglas MacArthur and to be briefed upon his plans for the occupation. On the 28th of August, 150 US personnel flew into Japan to begin the occupation. What the Americans would have found was a country with many dead and injured, an infrastructure completely destroyed by the Americans themselves. Tokyo was firebombed. It was destroyed. It looked like it had an atomic bomb dropped on it. It was that severe. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, of course, had actually had atomic bombs dropped on them. On the 19th of January 1946, MacArthur issued a special proclamation ordering the establishment of an international military tribunal for the Far East. At a meeting with the Emperor later in September, MacArthur assured him he needed his help to govern Japan, and so Hirohito was never tried. The logistical demands of the surrender were formidable. After Japan's defeat, more than 5.4 million Japanese soldiers and 1.8 million Japanese sailors were taken prisoner by Allied forces. The damage done to Japan's infrastructure combined with a severe famine in 1946, further complicated the Allied effort to feed Japanese POWs and civilians alike. The Americans ran Japan till 1952. Indeed, even today, in 2021, there are US forces, substantial forces, in Japan. By early 1946, General MacArthur's staff and Japanese officials were at odds over the most fundamental issue. Yes, the writing of a new constitution. Emperor Hirohito, the Prime Minister, and most of the cabinet members were extremely reluctant to take the drastic step of replacing the 1889 Meiji Constitution with a more liberal document. The Masumoto Commission's recommendations, made public in February of 1946, were quite conservative as no more than touching up the Meiji constitution. MacArthur rejected them outright and ordered his staff to draft a completely new document. An additional reason for this was that on the 24th of January 1946, the Prime Minister Shirhara had suggested to MacArthur that the new constitution, that the new constitution indeed, should contain an article renouncing war. The constitution eventually was mostly drafted by occupying Americans, 
a few Japanese scholars reviewed and modified it. Much of the drafting was done by two senior army officials with law degrees, Milo Rowell and Courtney Whitney. Although others chosen by MacArthur had a large say in the document, these two were the main authors. The bits about equality between men and women were written by Beat Sirota. Although the document's authors were American, they took into account the Meiji constitution, the demands of Japanese lawyers, the opinions of pacifist political leaders, and MacArthur gave the authors less than a week to complete the draft, which was presented to surprised Japanese officials on the 13th of February 1946. On the 6th of March 1946, the government publicly disclosed an outline of the pending constitution. On the 10th of April, elections were held for the House of Representatives of the 19th Imperial Diet, which would consider the proposed constitution. The election law having been changed, this was the first general election in Japan in which women were permitted to vote. There are two major points in the constitution that are important to note. Number one. Under the constitution, the emperor is the symbol of the state and of the unity of the people. Sovereignty less rests with the people, not the emperor, as it did under the Meiji constitution. And number two, under Article 9, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes. To this end, the article provides that land, sea and air forces as well as other war potential will never be maintained. This is still 1946. So the US occupies Japan, it is a destroyed country, the two big changes are a British-style monarchy polity plus the removal of the Japanese to even fight in a war. Keep in mind that while all of this was going on, the generation in Japan that was in power in 1946. That is the generation that fought Korea, fought China, fought the US, fought the UK, fought the USSR. And they were still in power in 1946. Maybe not the same people, but it's the people of the generation. They lived through these experiences. Clearly, they had to be worked with after the occupation. Once you occupy someone, their problems seem to become your problems. Now let's move on to Germany. After Nazi Germany surrendered, the Allies partitioned Berlin and Germany's remaining territory into four occupation zones. The Western sectors controlled by France, the United Kingdom and the United States. These were ultimately merged on the 23rd of May 1949 that formed the Federal Republic of Germany. On the 7th of October 1949, the Soviet zone became the German Democratic Republic. They were informally known as West Germany and East Germany. East Germany selected East Berlin as its capital, while West Germany chose Bonn as a provisional capital, hoping to someday move back to Berlin. The four occupiers would be running a completely devastated country, Lots of destruction, including firebomb cities, not to mention the evidence of genocide that was showing up as the Germans were retreating. West Germany 
was established as a federal parliamentary republic with a social market economy. Starting in 1948, West Germany became a major recipient of reconstruction under the aid known as the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan was the American initiative passed in 1948 for foreign aid to Western Europe. The United States transferred over 13 billion US dollars, equivalent of about 114 billion in 2020 money, for economic recovery programs to Western European economies after World War II. Konrad Endur, a non-Nazi German, became the first Chancellor of West Germany in 1949. Keep in mind that even with all the tri- trials of former Nazis, the population in of itself only a few months prior to 1946 was being ruled by the Nazi party. It's not like everyone just changed their minds in a few months, right? There were still Nazis in Germany. East Germany was an Eastern Bloc state, under political and military control by the USSR itself, through occupation forces and the Warsaw Pact. Although East Germany claimed to be a democracy, political power was exercised solely by leading members of the Politburo of the Communist-controlled Socialist Unity Party of Germany, supported by the Stasi, an immense secret service. Both West Germany and East Germany were obliged to pay war reparations to the Allied governments, according to the Potsdam Conference. First, provisionally, but later finally, Germany ceded a quarter of its territory as defined by its 1937 borders to Poland and the Soviet Union. Other Axis nations were obliged to pay war reparations according to the Paris Peace Treaties of 1947. Austria, interestingly, was not included in any of these treaties. According to the Yalta Conference, no reparations to allied countries would be paid in money. Instead, much of the value transferred consisted of German industrial assets, as well as forced labour to the Allies. The Allied demands were further outlined during the Potsdam Conference. Reparations were to be directly paid to the four victor powers – France, Britain, the USA, and the Soviet Union. For the countries in the Soviet sphere of influence, the USSR would determine its distribution. The Soviet Union annexed the German territories east of Oder-Nice, leading to the expulsion of 12 million Germans. These territories were incorporated into communist Poland and the USSR respectively and resettled with citizens of these two countries pending a final peace conference with Germany. Since the peace conference never took place, the areas were effectively ceded by Germany. In the case of Poland, the acquired territory was a compensation for the eastern borderlands annexed by the USSR, which lands had been assigned to Poland as a result of the Peace of Riga in 1921. The Paris Peace Treaties of 1947 were ultimately signed on the 10th of February. In short, the now victorious wartime Allied powers, principally the UK, USSR, USA and France, negotiated the deals of peace treaties with Italy, Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria and Finland. The treaties allowed the defeated Axis powers to resume their responsibilities as sovereign states in international affairs and to qualify for membership of the United Nations. 
This settlement that was elaborated in the peace treaties, including payment of war reparations, commitment to minority rights and territorial adjustments, including the end of Italian colonial empires in Africa, Greece and Albania, as well as changes to the Italian, Yugoslav, Hungarian, Czechoslovak, Soviet, Romanian, Hungarian, Romis, Roman, Romanian, even French, Italian and Soviet Finnish borders. That's a lot. The treaties also obliged the various states to hand over accused war criminals to the Allied powers for crime trials. The basic law for the Federal Republic of Germany is the Constitution of the Republic of Germany. This important point about that is that, like Japan, the basic law guaranteed the right of conscious objection to war service and prohibited the Federal Republic from activities participating for or engaging in aggressive war. These provisions remain in force today. Germany, through its constitution, was forced to never go on a war footing again. So, by 1946, the Germans and Japanese were occupied, destroyed and told what to do as those who are defeated often are told what to do. In 1946, the Germans and Japanese were the really bad guys, as opposed to the US, USSR, UK, France and China, who were just the bad guys. There were no good guys in World War II, or World War I for that matter. So, why did this happen? Why... How do you get such a sudden reconstruction of Japan and Germany by the Allies? How do you get something like the Marshall Plan? Why is all this happening? Why suddenly is Japan and Germany so important to these Allies? And why were they willing to work with Imperial Japanese and Nazi Germans so soon after the defeats of those respective countries? The answer is the Cold War. Suddenly, the Reds, the Communists, were the Americans' worst enemy. For the Soviets, the imperialist capitalists were their enemy. So much so that each side moved extremely quickly. Both sides used German scientists to develop their nuclear rocket and space programs. It didn't take long. To this day, Germany and Japan are domesticated nations. Over 75 years after the defeat, they are reminded how bad they were back then. They should not go to war, and they need to be supported by the victors. No UN Security Council seat, yet there are some benefits to being semi-occupied. Japan and Germany created miracle growth economies. After all, you can if someone else is looking after your national defense right? Psychologically, it would have been bad for the populations of the defeated. It reminds me of a football or soccer game. Anyone who watches, say, a cup final with so much at stake will notice that the winners and their fans are always so jubilant. The losers and their fans are completely depressed. And that's just a game. This was war, not just any war. It was the end of the 1914 to 1945 era. It was defeat. It was humiliation. It was occupation after a lot of belligerence. 
But hey, the turnaround was just as quick. So that answers my original question. What happened to Germany and Japan right after the defeat of World War II? Thank you for listening. Please feel free to recommend this podcast to friends and to rate it on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so very much. Thank you.